Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Welcome to our second episode back from the book album. I still have the disease that shall not be named, experiencing some shortness of breath, otherwise fine, and perhaps there will be cuts or stoppages in this podcast. That is why. Please know I'm okay. (laughs) I may sound a little rough around the edges, though. Today, as you can see from the title, we'll be talking about the book that I wrote, my 191-page masterwork. Just kidding. Uh, And sort of what went behind that, what writing routine I was able to follow, if any, and also uh, where I'm at with publishing, whether I want to publish, all of these great questions on the back end of writing a book. What do you do once you have the pages done and copy edited? So the journey of me writing my book, which is called Church Architecture from a Linguistic Perspective, or Kirchenarchitektur aus linguistischer Sicht in German, um, is three years ago, in the spring of 2019, before the pandemic, clearly. This was the spring of my freshman year. I completed about a 30-page research project on the church architecture or cityscape of Nuremberg. And through that research, it was my first real time getting my feet in the water for research, I discovered a lot of these archival materials from Nuremberg, great sources, and I consistently thought throughout my time at Northwestern, there really is a bigger work to be done about these churches, about this city. And Nuremberg, as you know, probably if you're if you have any affiliation with Germany, it's a very mythologized city in the sense that a lot of people point to Nuremberg, especially Nuremberg in the 16th century, which is the part of Nuremberg the moment in Nuremberg's history where a lot of like romanticists for example point to and they say that's you know quote-unquote the great German ideal which is of course a really dangerous idea when you get into things like German nationalism Um, and that's uh, that was a side project of my research as well but looking at this city and really understanding like there's a lot in medieval Nuremberg there's a lot in Um, the Reconstructionist era of Nuremberg in the 18th and 19th centuries that hasn't really been collected in a major source. And I mean, there are sources, right, about the history of Nuremberg. They, there are great, like, textbook-like sources on the city of Nuremberg. It's a very beloved city in that sense. People who find themselves involved, especially in research with Nuremberg, find themselves like amongst people who just know a lot about it. And Nuremberg, thankfully for researchers like me, is very documented. um, And it has a lot of just really rich history. So what I've done with my book uh, is twofold. (laughs) One, um, 
The project developed from spring of 2019 into a series of spin-off projects. Like I said, I did one on propaganda and the reappropriation of church architecture during the Nazi era. I did um, a couple, like I said, a couple other spin-off projects around the same length, like 30, 35 pages or so. When I was looking at things to do for a senior thesis in, must have been January 2021 or thereabouts, I decided to put all my knowledge that I had learned at Northwestern together and to apply linguistic theory to an analysis of church architecture. And I would use for my case studies none other than these churches at Nuremberg. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, how do I like really incorporate these churches in Nuremberg in a robust way? Um, and so what I did is I ended up reviewing first in the book the uh, linguistic theory. So I took tools from speech act theory and the philosophy of language. I took tools from pragmatics. And essentially what I did is I adapted them for, instead of looking at and analyzing language, I adapted them to church architecture. And so essentially made these sort of secularized and very specific or concrete metrics to be able to look at church architecture in a way that complements and I think fills the holes in a lot of the other ways or methodologies that we currently have to look at church architecture, namely uh, a formal analysis where you just look at the component parts of the church, you can date them, you can say, okay, this architect was involved, this school of architecture was involved, um, and sort of look at the sum of its parts together and say, okay, this is a such and such gothic or whatever period or style kind of a church. There's another analysis that my mentor, Professor Kikifer, started, and it's a way to look at the church in terms of its liturgical function and whether or not and to what extent the church matches its function in liturgy. So for example, there's a Catholic church, we all know the type, the big like basilica type Catholic church. It has this big center aisle, right? And that center aisle has a very pragmatic <laughs> function, which is that they have processions down that aisle during every church service. And there's sort of the, a specific setup for the height and the light of the space, the acoustics of the space, um, the ability for there to be a centering focus, whether that focus is the altar of the church or another aspect of the church. Um, so there's so much that goes into a liturgical analysis of church architecture. The third analysis, and these three analyses are not mutually exclusive, by the way, there's a lot of overlap between them. So I, that was part of the work of doing these chapters was <laughs> to figure out where and how much to repeat myself. <laughs> but the last analysis that I at least highlighted in my book is a historical analysis of the church, which is looking at specifically the church's revisions throughout time, um, the historical uh, sort of context and how that context has built upon itself over time 
to articulate this one church that we see today. And of course, my conclusionary thoughts in the book, aside from outlining the three Nuremberg churches, which I highlighted, uh, were just applying theories to... I did a trip, research trip, to Nuremberg in December. I know some of you remember I did a couple podcasts while I was in Nuremberg. Um, and I ended up looking at very specific instances within the church, and each church rather, um, and being able to analyze them very concretely. And that was so fun. It was a lot of work to create the theory over several five-month or so span, and then to revise the theory while and shortly after I was in Nuremberg, um, and then to really get down on the writing part of um, especially the historical sections, looking at the church architecture in January, February, um, working on these case studies in March, and then really just writing the rest of it, intro, conclusion, acknowledgments, uh, double, triple, quadruple checking my bibliography, which is very important to me to give credit where it's due, um, and then, right, applying my linguistic, now architectural theory to these case studies in Nuremberg, and the result was that I was able to look at things like COVID guidelines and renovations and art installations in the churches, which none of the three theories that I outlined really can account for. And that's something that was really important to me going in, is to be able to look at any aspect of the church, or a church specifically, rather, and being able to analyze it in a way that shows me what that object is doing in the church, how it is, in that sense, commanding people to move in a certain way around it or interact with it. So it's very technical in the sense that you do get into really minute and nitty-gritty linguistic theory, but it's also very like art historical in some senses. I look at a lot of the very famous altarpieces or other artworks in the church. Um, I'm thinking of specifically the Lorenzkirche. Um, I just, yeah, that is such a treasure trove of artistic works from before Luther. Um, but as well, looking at, you know, other elements within the Frauenkirche and the Zabalduskirche, um, which both have artistic collections in their own right and have just beautiful and brilliant things to analyze. So that's really how that's a maybe more convoluted way than I set out to explain, but that is how I wrote a book, is I started with this general topic that I already knew quite a bit about. I decided to fill a gap in the research of church architecture, and I ended up going and seeking in more information about church architecture as a result. I decided to apply this linguistics framework, so I spent months and months building the framework and then in such a way that I was able to distill it, right, into, you know, a dozen pages um, for each part of the framework. 
rather than, you know, spending a hundred pages on my framework and then having no room to do my other, what I, what else I needed to accomplish. I think that was something that I definitely learned during this process was to be as concise and as, um, just as considerate of your reader as possible. So yeah, really, I started with the ideas, I started with what I was interested in, and then the field work in Nuremberg, the case studies, the application of the theory, those all came later, and that is something um, that really evolved in a graceful way. <laughs> I'm really lucky to say that I was able to write a book uh, to conclude my undergraduate career, um, and the book has been done since April 27th was when I turned it in. So it has been out of my hands in that sense. I did have a copy printed, um, which was very, it was a very uh, tearful moment for me <laughs> because I was holding my child in my arms. And you know, it's, I will say, granted, you know, it's not the longest book in the world. 191 pages, it's clocking in at 38,000 words. Um, not the longest book, it's like a novella type length. Um, at the same time, though, I didn't need more than 38,000 words, <laughs> and that's something that I'm really proud of, is that I was able to say everything I needed to within a relatively reasonable framework. In terms of where I'm at with publishing, it has been a really interesting journey, actually. So, I'm pursuing two different avenues simultaneously. The first is to condense the book into like a 30 page article type format and look at places like architecture journals or like linguistics slash more philosophy of language journals to publish that in. The second is going through a university press and seeing whether they would be interested in that. The hard part about this book, because it involves so many different like topics and it juggles a lot of different theories, and it's a really a truly interdisciplinary work between linguistics, philosophy of language, church architecture, history, there's so much there. So um, that's the trickiest part for me, is uh, the audience and who would benefit most from having this book in their library, in their collection. So those are the two avenues. I suppose if this does hit the shelves, right, of university libraries near you, <laughs> I will let you know. Um, or if it actually gets published in a journal or something like that. That would be quite, <laughs> that would be a great day for me and something that I think, you know, there's a lot of questions that this work looks at articulating or answering rather formally and with formal methods and I think that's really important is to when you have these kind of wishy-washy questions of like what does an object do what is an object's function in a church what are the results of placing an object in a church for example of bolting an altar to the floor of a church for example when you have questions like that, it's easy to say, well, there's a cultural, you know, ramification behind each action and people sort of just follow mimesis and they mimic everyone around them. That's why they move about the church in a certain way. 
And those are definitely part of it, and I think parts that are important enough that they shouldn't be ignored. That's also not the entire story, and I find it really valuable to be able to look at, again, formal, measurable, distinct methods to be able to follow through sort of a system, and you have this input of this object in the church, or this action, or this movement, and it creates an output that says this is exactly what that object is doing, how it is doing it, um, and in that sense it's like sort of mathematical, and that really makes me um, feel like something is accomplished at the end of the day. And it's possible, you know, of course, that my theory is not the best constructed one. There are definitely holes in it. There are definitely questions that I left unaddressed. There's definitely, um, you know, things that, like, reviewers can tear apart. At the same time, though, at the end of the day, if my work fails, and if it is sort of dismissed as something that doesn't work in the end, the best thing that I've done is close this avenue for the next person who wants to answer the same questions. And that, to me, is valuable enough to try to get the work into later stages of publishing, of other uh, kinds of more public avenues. So yeah, in terms of my thought process about it, I'm, it I've just learned so much from this process of writing a book. Um, it has really taught me that I'm capable of doing something long term, right? Three years in the making, I would say about a year or a year and a half to actually write the book. My writing routine was never consistent, and this is something that I, like, shamefacedly say to you all, uh, because I'm reading Daily Rituals by Mason Curry right now. Um, you know, it just was never something that I fell into. I wish that I was the kind of person who, like, wrote from 6am to noon every day, or like 6am to 8am every day. I did not do that. I wrote so sporadically. I write typically in 10-page bursts, and then I will go back and edit for a while, and then I'll write another five pages. So really, like, I could write 10 pages in a day, and then the next two days do nothing, and then write another five pages on the, th on the fourth day. So I'm just, I'm a very kind of sporadic writer. That's something that I really want to work on <laughs> with my next book is to try to um, get myself into a routine. And I'm sure that a lot of the personal issues and things that came up during this past six months, starting January 22, a lot of that prevented me from achieving the writing routine that I set out to achieve. Um, and I'm sure that as more things get resolved, and as I move forward, it will become much better. <laughs> and yeah, in terms of a couple last things I learned from writing a book. One, I learned that a book is only as great as its team. I had a fantastic team working with me on this thesis and this book. Um, I had maybe 30 people that I thanked in my acknowledgements, and I just had the best team of advisors, of people looking at my literature review, people looking at my abstract, people looking at things in German, things in English, 
um, I just really had the best support system and that really really helped. It was like a hands-off support system, like come to me if you need me kind of support system and that's exactly what I needed because I trusted myself to get the work done and I'm grateful that they trusted me to get the work done um, but I also did reach out for help so many times and I'm so so grateful for that so that's something I will look forward to with my next project. I would say um, this long-term scope, there is an end to long-term things, and even if I can't see the end of the school year slash my degrees with graduation this upcoming week, I know that it will end, <laughs> I know that I will have done the work to get there and to walk across the stage, and so there's definitely this trust involved that I learned and that I've really developed over the course of writing this book. And that's all for today. Again, I apologize for my still healing voice and my still healing lungs, evidently, from the disease that shall not be named. I hope you enjoyed hearing a bit about my book and my process for writing it. Uh, I certainly enjoyed writing it. <laughs> this is something that I hope to do again, and I hope that this is the first of many books and not just a one-off, one-hit wonder. <laughs> um, and in terms of leaving comments and questions, Didion and Hawthorne at gmail.com is the gmail address. We send our newsletters every month on the 13th of the month. If you want to uh, get into those, those are so fun for me to put together and to get lit recommendations for you all. We also have relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the show notes for this episode. You can always leave your comments there. All right, y'all. Thank you, thank you. I will see you next week. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.